Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, what we just sang, I don't know if you noticed that, but that stanza really speaks to what the Apostle Paul gets at here in this portion of Ephesians 3. This is what he says um, in stanza 2. Ere into being I was brought, thine eye did see, and in thy thought my life in all of its perfect plan uh, was ordered ere my days began. This is the eternal work of God. It has been planned from all eternity what the Lord would do. I mean, it's a hard concept to grasp. I understand that. You lay awake in bed at night trying to roll that around in your mind that the plan of God is eternal and it's always been in His mind. It's it's easier to say it in the negative. There has never been a time that it was not in the mind of God. God doesn't learn new information. God doesn't learn new things. If you have to say that God looked at all the different uh, scenarios of life and He chose the best, then you destroy uh, the omniscience of God. You're saying that there's something He didn't know and that He had to experience it by viewing all of these things to then be able to say, this is the best of all of them. No, it's always been in the, the mind of God. And there never was a plan B or a plan C or a what if plan. We make those plans. We make contingent plans. You know, oftentimes when you have your calendar, you write things down in pen. You shouldn't write it down in pen. You should write it down in pencil. Why is it? You've heard the phrase, right? You pencil it in because things change. And they can change from day to day. You never know what a day is going to bring forth. So my plans change. I might have this planned and this, it doesn't happen. It doesn't work out. I don't make it. So, with the mind of God, with the plan of God, never changes. Uh, God doesn't change. That's plan is eternal. And that's what the Apostle Paul is revealing here in this portion, verse 10 through 13. Now, just uh, by way of review, remember uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. Remember the indicative, the imperative. The indicative being the statement of fact. What God declares in His Word. And beloved, as I've said, you are who God declares you to be, no more, no less. Your identity is that which God declares, not what you think or not what the world says about you. It is what God says in His Word that is my identity in Jesus Christ. That's why I say, when the Bible speaks, it speaks of two categories of people. Sinners and saints. The saints are not those uh, holy people, more holy than others, that have a special unction that the Roman Catholic Church then sets forward and canonizes certain individuals. That's not what the Bible refers to when it speaks of saints. It is speaking of those who are in Christ Jesus. The redeemed are saints in Christ. That is the identity given when the Apostle Paul writes the letters to all of the churches. He says in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. We're, We're sinful saints. We're no longer totally depraved sinners. That's the two categories that are revealed in the Word of God. And so that is what God declares in His Word is the indicative form, a statement of fact. This is the truth of the matter. This is what God says. This is who you are in Christ. 
Paul works through that in Ephesians chapter 1, and then he reveals what God has done in light of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and who we are in Jesus Christ. And then he moves into chapter 2 and he says, this is where you were. When Christ was doing the work on your behalf, when He came to you, this is where you were, spiritually dead and in rebellion against God. Hating God, going your own way, hateful and hating one another, despising all things holy, righteous, good, and virtuous. And God rescued you. While you were dead, He made you alive. He spiritually invaded the inner recesses of your soul and raised you up to newness of life. He awakened you, as it were, and He gave you new life and infused new qualities into your will. So whereas you hated God, now you love Him. Why? Because He first loved you. In that, He demonstrates His love for you is that He made you alive in Christ Jesus. That's the love of God. That's the grace of God, the mercy of God. And it's all contained in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's who we are, beloved. I mean, the wondrous understanding of who I am positionally and who I am practically. You have got to get them both distinguished. You've got to delineate between justification, which is a one-time act. God declares you just in His sight on account of the righteous robes of Christ imputed to you. That's a one-time event. You will never be more righteous positionally before God than you are right now. You know, we have a tendency to think of that... Uh, When I die and I'm with the Lord, then I'm safe. Beloved, if you're in Christ, you're safe. Nothing can come upon you except by the hand of God. And all things that do come upon you are working together for your salvation. You are no more secure in heaven than you are right now. I mean, there is the joy that we'll experience and the fullness of it in the presence of the Lord... And we have the beginning of eternal joy now, but the, the safety that we have in Jesus Christ right now. We are no more safe in heaven than we are right now in the hands of Christ. I don't think we think about that often. I think because we live in a world of all kinds of dangers, trials, troubles, tribulation, difficulties, that we think our life, there's peril around the corner everywhere we go. And there may be. But we're still safe in Christ. Nothing can ever separate me from the love of God in Christ. And this is all because the Lord has raised us up spiritually, given us new life, and given us a love and a heart and a desire for our Savior. Whereas Christ used to be a curse word, He is now a word of prayer, a word of praise, a word of exaltation. We adore the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas before salvation, we had no adoration for Christ. We had no fear of reverence and worship and honor for Christ. And now we honor Him. Now we bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we serve Him and exalt Him as our King of kings and our Lord of lords. And we don't do it perfectly. That's the work of sanctification. So we're justified. We're declared holy and righteous in Jesus Christ. And daily we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not working for, working out what the Holy Spirit works within through the Word. We are being conformed to the image of Christ daily. You say, you know, I I don't feel it sometimes. It's not a feeling. 
It's a reality. It's a spiritual reality that more and more we are being shaped and molded to think our thoughts after Christ Jesus. We're thinking of Christ's thoughts after Him. That's what we're thinking. I mentioned this morning in the prayer. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish. Then the outside will become clean as well. You see, we live in a therapeutic age. We live in an age where we just simply want to modify our behaviors and say, hey, look, see, I'm a Christian. I changed the way I live. No, no. That's not. Behavioral modification is not you being a Christian. The changing of our behavior is a direct result of the Spirit of God working within the soul, making us more and more like Jesus. And that's what you find even in the book of Acts. They made note that the disciples had been with Jesus. And as they were with Him and talking to Him and conversing with Him and fellowshipping with Him, they became more and more like Jesus Christ. And it was seen then in the way that they lived their lives. Think about that in the early church in Jerusalem where they were poverty stricken. And people took their property and sold it and gave to any who had need. This is not communism. This is Christian love and charity. It's love and concern and an outreach and giving to our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're no longer, oh, this is only mine. This is only for me. No, there's a care and a concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because the inward has changed. The inside of the cup has become clean and the outside is becoming clean as well. So, this is what is revealed to us uh, in the book of Ephesians. Now understand that, beloved. Sanctification is a lifelong process. And it's difficult. It's hard. It's compared, you know, the, the, the three metaphors. Farmer, soldier, athlete. It's difficult. It's difficult living in a fallen world for the glory of Christ. It's difficult to praise and worship. And we live in fallen bodies. We still have sin within the soul. So you, fi- you find this tension that goes on continually. That's why we're always called to put off and put on, which you cannot do apart from being in the Word of God, growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul then speaks about the mystery of the gospel. He became a minister by the working of God, uh, that affecting working of his power, that he might bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And now look at our text. Verse 9, getting a running start, he says, To make all see which is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages have been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. He did that for this intent, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the churches to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, There's a lot right there. The Apostle Paul is saying, that uh, he was made a minister and he was to bring the gospel to the nations so that through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit would regenerate the souls of those who were elected unto salvation, bring them and unite them into the church, implant them into Christ, baptize them into the body of Jesus Christ, that as the church now would be that which is a manifold demonstration of God's wisdom. Throughout all generations to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So, first thing is, notice the intent. God had an intent to do this. That His wisdom would be manifest. Manifold, variegated. All different kinds and aspects of the wisdom of God. Think about the wisdom of God. How often do you think 
and meditate upon God's wisdom. God is infinitely wise. Everything that He does displays wisdom. And I'll tell you how foolish we are as human beings, sinful people, that we don't understand God's wisdom displayed and we criticize it. Let me give you a for instance. What about Joseph? What do you think about the life of Joseph? He was a favored son of Jacob. And yet he's hated by his brothers. Why is he hated? Well, he's hated because God has revealed things to Joseph that he didn't reveal to his brothers. And Joseph was the next to the youngest. So Joseph would tell his dreams and his brothers despised him. You know, your she's bowed down to my sheath. What are you saying? We're going to worship you? Are you out of your mind? Well, I had another dream too. And the sun and the moon, they did homage to me as well. And then Jacob got a little irritated about that one, didn't he? What are you, my, you and your mother, my mother and I, are your mother and I, what are we going to bow down and worship you too? But his father, Jacob, he kept these things in his heart. His brothers despised him. So what happened? Well, they were out with the, the sheep and they were in Goshen and uh, Joseph went to find them. They had moved on and an angel appeared to Joseph and told him where his brothers went. And his brothers said this, let whoever finds us have to dream their way to us. Can you imagine how they would have reacted as soon as Joseph said, hey, brothers, that the dreamer dreamed of where they were. And they were livid. And they grabbed him and they threw him in a pit. And they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelite slave traders and into Egypt that he went. And he was sold on the slave blocks and bought by the Potiphar, brought into his house, accused of raping Potiphar's wife, thrown into the prison. Everything he touched turned to gold, as it were. He was given the keys of the prison by the prison guard. And he was blessed. Then he's in there and he finds the baker and the cupbearer who have dreams. He interprets the dreams. I mean, this is a cycle of years that are going on. You understand this. And then the baker loses his head. The cupbearer is restored to position with the pharaoh. Then the pharaoh has dreams. And then the cupbearer says, I remember a guy in prison. He brings Joseph in. Joseph says, dreams belong to the Lord. And he gives interpretation. Joseph gave the interpretation of the dream. He's raised up the second in command. And there is a famine with the people of God who are in need of food. And God raised Joseph up to be the leader in Egypt to supply for the needs of his people. Seventy-five people alive that were brought out of Palestine into Egypt, into Goshen, in an area was lush that they were provided for. And we say, why did God, why all of that? Why go through? So that we might walk by faith. That we might trust the plan and the providential hand of God. God has a purpose and He has a plan. And you know, I'll say it, I'll be the first to admit it. I am too stupid to understand it. But God is always working, day after day, moment by moment. God is working in the lives of His people. He is orchestrating. He is governing all things for His glory and the good of His people. And we don't see it. You see, we, we get snapshots. This little shot here, this little, and we can't piece the puzzle together. It's like a tapestry. 
We can't see the backside. We can't see the beauty. We only see all these strings all over the place. And we say, what is God doing? That's our foolishness. That's what sin does to us. Sin causes us to be those people that question the providence of God. Why did this happen? Why did that? I I think when we learn, when we read the scriptures, is even as Job. See this hand? Put it right here. What does that mean? Shut up. God is working. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Even if you don't know what it is, you don't need to know what it is. You only need to know that God is working in all things together for your good. That's the comfort. Job went through it, all the trials, and he learned. He understood who God was. That's when we learn, beloved. That's when we really experientially understand the purposes of God and the presence of God is through suffering. It's through the trials. You know, when all things are are well, when all things are fine in our life, we have a tendency to think either we earned it by our good behavior or we move away from the things of the Lord because everything is well. You know, wasn't it telling at 9-11 all of a sudden the churches are packed? Why is that? That, that's That's hypocrisy. That's a nation that only wants to worship God for the goodies. Give me the things. I don't want Christ. I want what He can give. The believer says, I don't care about the things that He gives. I want Him. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure beyond measure. These all things are fading. They're temporal. And it's nice to have some of these things. But He is the prize. He is the goal. He is the pearl. He is the one that we desire. Him. And as a result, He pours out blessings upon His people. But it's a wonder what God does in our lives. And we need to understand the wisdom of God. And He is constantly working His wisdom through. There's a lesson to be learned through the pandemic. There's a lesson to be learned through sickness. Because sickness has a tendency to draw us nearer to God. You're on your sickbed. When you're going through the pain and the difficulty of life and you feel your life breath laboring and as if you are going to die, that brings the believer even closer to the Lord because you know the things that are important then. Death has the ability to do that. It shakes us out of our lethargy. It'd be good to have a funeral every day, wouldn't it? Just simply so that we could see the casket and knowing that's where I'm heading. This body is going to the grave one day. And what are the things that are actually important in life? Are they the temporal things? I was talking to Maria this morning. Her mom is not doing well. And her mom is 90 or so. And as the body is falling to the earth, I just simply told Maria, I said, you've done more good for your mom than your brothers and sisters all combined. Why? Because she spoke to her about the gospel, about salvation in Jesus. The body's going to perish. And I'm not saying it's unimportant, the physical things. We need physical things. We're physical beings. But we're also spiritual. We're heavenly. We're terrestrial. We're of the earth. But we're celestial. We're of heaven. We're of heavenly being and origin. 
So that being the case, I need more than just my daily food. I need a food that doesn't perish, that I might live by the word that comes from the mouth of God. So look to the wisdom of God. And this is made known to the church, that the church might then make known the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers. What is this? This is the angelic realm. Both angels and demons. Paul refers to this in Ephesians chapter 6 principalities and powers in the high places. This is the heavenly places. So we're making the wisdom of God known as we worship the Lord and as we evangelize and as we proclaim the gospel. The gospel wisdom. The wisdom of God in the gospel to bring sinners to life and bring them to themselves through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the wisdom of God. We as the church... We have the privilege, we have the blessing to declare God's wisdom. We're gathering, beloved, this morning to declare God's wisdom. That God used a fool out of the world and sat in a pulpit. Because it's the foolish things that the Lord uses to confound the wise. The foolish things that are preached. And by the preacher who is called a fool by the world's standards. As he brings the gospel. But it's the foolishness of preaching that God saves those who believe. The world would never do it that way. We make manifest God's eternal purpose. Notice in verse 11. The eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose of God that has been in his mind forever. God has eternally purposed to save sinners. God has eternally purposed all things that have happened in this world. Now, beloved, I don't, know, I don't have the answer to this. And I know there are some of you that have query about this. You, you roll this around in your mind and you can't figure it out. And it bothers you you can't figure it out. Well, let me just say first off, stop trying to be wiser than God. If the Lord hasn't revealed it to you in His Word, you're not going to know it. All right, just understand and just resolve to the fact that there are things that you are not going to know. The depth of the being of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence, one God, not three, one God. You're not going to understand the depths of that. It's revealed to us that we can, we can attain to it, we can apprehend it, but you can't comprehend it. The eternal purpose of God. God has done all of these things, and yet He calls us he, that we're not puppets. We choose the things that we want, we desire. We choose them. We freely choose them. And yet I don't understand that. God has predestined everything, and since He has predestined everything, how is it that I'm not a puppet? And yet that's the revelation given of Scripture. That God is sovereign over all things, predestined everything that comes to pass, and man is free in the choices that he makes. And God does it in such a way, displaying His wisdom, that man is not a stock and a block or a puppet. Both are true. And that's the eternal purpose of God. Now, would you write a book like that? You know you wouldn't. You know you want to solve all the mysteries. As a matter of fact, the mystery, the thing that has not been revealed, you want it revealed. And Moses said in Deuteronomy 29 that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, the things that are revealed 
belong to us and our children and our children's children forever. We want to know the things that aren't revealed. And yet God says, it's none of your business. So just thinking about that, our, our natures are such that we want the things revealed and solved. You ever been to a mystery movie and they don't, at the end, they don't uh, solve it for you? Oh, that's, that's, that's murderous in the soul, isn't it? You walk out grumbling about that movie. I can't believe they did that. You want it solved. That's why you realize that just in that little thing, that the scriptures are not from man. God used men, but the scriptures are from God. Because man wants to solve all the mysteries, and yet God leaves mystery. Uh, they talk about Jesus walking on water. How did he feed the 5,000 and the 4,000? Which you know that it speaks of only the men. So that means 25, 30,000 people there that Jesus fed. How did he do that? Five loaves and two fish. How did he do that? I have no idea. But he did. And so we wonder and we query about that. How did that happen? What about the person of Christ? One person, two natures. Fully, truly God. Fully and truly man. No division, no separation, no confusion, no mixture of natures. How does that work? I don't know. It's mysterious, isn't it? It's ineffably mysterious. And that ought to humble you with the wisdom of God. That our God is awesome. That, our God, that, that word is reserved for God. God alone is awesome. You know, that's the vernacular of the day. People say, oh, that's awesome. No, that's not awesome. God is awesome. And God isn't big. Big is a relative term. God is immense. There is nothing that can be compared to our God. That, that's who we worship. And this is the things that He's revealed to us. What we need to know. He gives it to us in His word. That we, as a church might declare His eternal purpose and what He has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And really, the, the whole point is bringing Jew and Gentile together in one new body. One new man bringing the two together. There were always hostilities in the Old Covenant. God brings the two together. He says, there are many sheep that are not of this fold. Them too I must bring in, that there will be one fold and one shepherd. We are a one new man in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile. So there is no longer the distinction of ethnicity. We are all one in Jesus Christ. That is how we are to communicate to one another. Neither slave nor free, Scythian, bond. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery that was covered in the Old Covenant that is revealed in the New Covenant. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So He accomplished this in Christ and it's in Him that we have boldness. Do you have boldness this morning? We, we looked at a little bit of that this morning in Sunday school in Hebrews 4. Coming boldly. Being bold means being of frank speech. That there is... There's no pretense. You're speaking it clearly and loudly so people can understand. Here's an example. If you don't believe on Christ, you're going to hell. There's no mincing words there. That is clear. There's no ambiguity. And we have boldness of speech in this way that we can come before our God and we can come boldly 
And we can confess. We can cry out. Why? Because our God loves us. We come with boldness and with access, with confidence, through faith in Him. Faith in Christ has enabled us as the entrance into the throne of grace. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. We come boldly to the throne of grace. And when we come, beloved, to the throne, and you think of regal, you think of majesty, you think of, in a sense, trembling, and why should I come, and how can I come before the king? And when the doors are open and you come into the throne of grace, who do you find sitting there? The one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The one who has forgiven you of all of your sins. The one who has called you light in him and forgiven, no longer under condemnation. You are mine. You are my sheep. I will feed you. I will nourish you. I will keep you. I will protect you. And so we come. We come with boldness, with confidence, because I come covered in Christ. I come with His righteousness. Not me. Not my efforts. Not my works. Not what I have done. I didn't eat this. I didn't eat that. I didn't do this. I didn't say that. I don't come with any of that. That all sends me to hell. You know what I come in? I come in the righteous robes of Christ who has accomplished all the perfection of God's law in my place. And He was condemned that I would never be condemned. What He fulfilled, He fulfilled in my place. And now we are treated as the people of God as if we had kept all the commandments perfectly. What a wonder of God's wisdom. Did you go before the Lord with boldness this morning? Not arrogance. You understand. You know, the arrogance is the guy that comes and walks to the front of the line and says, do you not know who I am? That's the arrogant individual. The humble individual is the one who knows he deserves hell, but he has been given heaven. And he comes based upon the righteous works of another. And that's how we come. Come into the presence of God. What would you hold back in prayer? What would you think about praying to the Lord that you're not going to pray this or you're going to pray this? What are the things that you stipulate? And why do you do that? Why do you think you can cover things in your heart? He knows your heart and He loves you still. And He says, come. And you say, I'm going to fix it. You can't fix it, beloved. He fixes it. He makes the change. Well, I'm going to be like Jesus. No, no, no. You look to Jesus and He will make you like Him. It's like Him we become, as the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wondrous face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You know, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, said in 2 Corinthians 3, When Moses was on the mount with the Lord, 40 days and 40 nights, he came down. The children of Israel saw him, and they were terrified. Why? He was glowing. They knew he had been in the presence of God. Well, what's the point? Paul is saying that as as Moses was in the presence of the Lord, God's glory was then upon him. And he was glorious, his face, so much so the children of Israel said, put something on your face. We we can't stand to look at you. You're glowing. (coughs) Paul says, in the same way, we as the people of God, new covenant believers... It's not an outward glory. It's an inward glory that then translates to outward activity. But it's beholding Christ. It's looking upon Him that we become like Him. 
It's not me trying harder or doing more or trying to do better. You understand that? It's not me refraining from eating this or drinking that or not doing this and not doing that. This is the inside of the cup and the dish that is being cleansed by the Spirit of the Lord as I am beholding Jesus. That's how you become like Him, is keeping focused upon Him. When are you weary? When are you one that is confused and depressed? When you turn away from Christ. Peter, as I mentioned in Sunday school, walked on water. And he's in the boat. And he sees the Lord. And he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. I mean, I have my own opinion about that. I, mean, I could see that in my mind's eye. I know what I would do. I mean, could you see? Do you think Peter got out of the boat and, and just kind of took his foot and tested the water? I mean, he's like bailing out, isn't he? He's like immediately jumping over the side of the boat and walking to Jesus. And what happened to him? He became discouraged and weary when he saw the wind and the waves and he was no longer focusing on Christ, but he's looking at his circumstances. And he sank. And you and I do the same thing. We sink. And we cry out, Lord, save me. That's a refocus, isn't it? It's recalibrating the mind again back to Jesus. And he lifts us up out of the water. That's the kind... Savior that we have. That's the long-suffering Savior that we have. And so, we come with boldness. Come, beloved. We have access to our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We come to the Father by Him. No one comes but by Him. We come by Him. We have the privilege to come to Him. We come and we cast all the cares and concerns and trials and struggles, temptation, whatever it may be. Lay it out to the Lord. The Lord knows our hearts. And so we come with this confidence because of the righteous robes of Christ. And Paul then concludes, he says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations. Paul had tribulation. 2 Corinthians 11, he reveals tribulation. A night and a day in the deep, he was, uh, five times he was beaten with rods, 30 minus, or 40 minus 1, 39 times with lashes. Uh, he was whipped, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was forsaken. The Apostle Paul said he had tribulation internally, externally. We find in Romans chapter 7, the struggles that he had in his heart, the things that he didn't want to do, he found himself doing. Things that he wanted to do, he didn't find himself doing those. Oh, wretched man that I am. I feel, I see it, I, this pull of sin still in my heart. Tribulation. He says, don't lose heart at these things. Because all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, tribulation. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Man is born to troubles as the sparks fly upward. Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. Read the book of Acts. There's all kinds of problems that go on in the life of the church. Jesus said if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they hated me, they'll hate you as well. Tribulation in the world in which we live. Don't lose heart. That's for the glory. It's the glory of the believer. It's the glory of the church. It's through tribulation that glory is seen. Glory is manifested. Reflecting the glory of God. You know, there is nothing sweeter than seeing a saint in the hospital 
body racked with cancer, singing praises and hymns to God. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were in the inner prison. And they were singing psalms and hymns to God. Praise to God. It wasn't their condition, circumstances, the trial that they were in, that was that which was then directing how they are to live. It was that their mind's eye was upon the Lord. So even through that trial, they were able to sing to our Lord. Beloved, that's us as the church. Let us keep singing to our God. Let us keep coming boldly. Keep trusting the providential hand of God. God gives us his word to prepare us then to live and to respond in a godly way to the providential events that come upon us from day to day. Be a person of prayer. Be a person that understands the promises of God. And be a person that then can rely upon the providential hand of God, knowing that God has a purpose. I don't know why certain things happen, but I do know that the Lord is in the mix. He is directing all these things to his glory and the good of his church. Trust in that and keep coming. Keep coming boldly to the throne of grace because Christ is our entrance into our Father's presence. Amen. Shall we pray?